0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: Julie, uh, you've seen the movie Bambi, right? You saw that as a child.
0: I did, yeah, yeah. Scarred
1: by that, right? Oh, Yeah,
0: just like everyone else.
1: Um, Looking at Bambi, one can't help but think, this does not look like a real deer. Its eyes are way too big. Like, I would hate to see the animal... Like a realistic Bambi, you know, because its <laughs> eyes would just be enormous and glistening. Like if it
0: took actual shape, it would be monstrous and yeah, scary. Yeah,
1: it, it would be kind of bizarre. It would look like, a, like an alien, like a, like a little gray alien with the giant eyes, except the, in deer form. Yeah, but
0: illustrated, quite cute, right?
1: Yeah, in illustrated form, it's, it's very adorable.
0: Yeah, and some might even argue that Bambi was the beginnings of what we know as kawaii, which is sort of the embracing of all things cute.
1: Ah, okay. So they cheated the deer up a bit, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. And in the age of like LOL cats and, you know, cute puppies sneezing or panda sneezing and everything else that we're seeing on the Internet, it's undeniable that people have a connection to this cuteness, the, these animals. Um And it kind of brings into question our relationship with animals and the way that we treat them and we think about them.
1: Right. Like, uh, with Bambi, they actually started off with real deer, right? They brought in real deer for the yeah, animals to look yeah. at. Yeah.
0: So, the, so just so everybody knows that the reason why we have this babyfied Bambi, mm-hmm. this, this big-eyed, doughy-eyed fawn is because Disney was such a stickler for detail that, that at first he said, okay, you know what? We need to really make sure that Bambi is rendered as, as realistically as possible. So he had a pair of fawns shipped in from Maine. And then he made his artists watch an anatomist an dissect the carcass of a newborn deer that resulted from that pair. And the sketches they produced were were really perfect, right? They they were very realistic. But Disney realized right off the bat that this was a mistake.
1: This wasn't going to sell. This was was not not going to appeal to didn't test well with audiences. Right,
0: right. This reality wasn't really going to hook audiences the way that he wanted them to be emotionally hooked from the storyline. So he had his artists go back to the drawing board and they made them more cuddly. Um, and this is, this is actually from Hal Herzog's really great book called some we love, some we hate and some we eat, which looks at our tenuous relationship, uh, with animals. And, um, he says that Bambi was essentially morphed into a surrogate human baby. Wow. Yeah.
1: It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, and then it just, yeah, it does make you really think about this, this complex relationship that we have with animals. Uh, especially like in this case where guys are sitting around thinking about how these cute animals are going to appeal to uh, to to children, even as they're dissecting their carcasses well, and, and yeah. planning out Bambi, you know. Uh, I, you generally don't think of the various, um, well, not vivisections, but uh, dissections involved with, uh, uh, with your, with your beloved, uh, Disney films. I, I I'm hoping yeah. this was the only one they really did that for.
0: Uh, who knows? <laughs> you know, you have to, now you start to think about all the past, uh, oh, films gosh. that they did and wonder, that's what, where what that, they did. that weird dwarf uh,
1: autopsy film comes from, right? Uh, yeah, for Snow yeah, White. Yep. Yep. got to the bottom of that. Yeah.
0: Uh, but I mean, from hell Herzog's perspective in his book, this is exactly the problem that we have here is that, uh you know, here's who's on the one hand trying to, to make this animal really connect with people and make it look more like a baby. On the other hand, you know, he, Disney thinks nothing of, uh, you know, taking the life of this little fawn in order to create something like this just for our pleasure.
1: Right. And, of course, the, this this draws right into the idea of um, uh, that, like, we're we're attracted to, say, a cat or a dog mm-hmm. because it has, especially a kitten, uh, where it has oversized eyes. Yeah. Uh, or, or a puppy, it has oversized eyes and this, uh, this, not completely human-like face, but still, uh, the, the snout is less, uh, less pronounced than dogs generally when they're, when they're smaller, mm-hmm. and uh, so it looks a little bit like a baby, like it calls to mind an infant child. And therefore, we have this paternal instinct that's kicking in when we look at it.
0: Yeah, yeah. We've talked about the parental instinct before. Uh, in fact, we talked about it in our dogs podcast. Yes, yeah. And uh, in Nova's Dogs Decoded, psychologist Morton Kringlebach uh, put ab- adults into Meg scanners, which are these really cool supercharged scanners mm-hmm. uh, or neuroimagers. And then they showed photos uh, to people while they were in the scanner, of unfamiliar adult faces, infant faces, and puppy faces. And within one-seventh of a second, the medial orbital frontal cortex, which is involved in emotional responses, lit up like a pinball machine when people looked at infants and puppy faces. And this is what they were calling the parental instinct. Like, you can't not respond to these animals. Um, and there's the, here's the kicker, though, which I thought was really interesting. Even in people who are blind from birth, Uh, they have the same areas activated in their brains when they hear the names of animals. So so it it sort of points to this concept of animals or how we've painted them in language, which goes far beyond visual processing.
1: Like baby seal. Instantly, like it's going to sort of light up certain uh, things.
0: Yeah. And even if you don't have a, a visual of that, if you've been blind from birth, you have an idea of what a baby seal means in our language and to humans.
1: Basket of scorpions.
0: Ah, yeah. repulsion.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So. Um,
1: kitten kitten on a tricycle. Oh. Yeah.
0: Heart melting right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kitten farts erupting.
1: I don't know about from me, that one. From, from
0: the kitten sitting here in the tricycle. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it does kind of, you know, make us ask this question of why do some animals elicit these warm and fuzzy feelings while others elicit repulsion? They're, they're all beings. Right.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. Like how much of it is, is learned? Like you learn to say hate a snake just because you hear people say, "Ooh, that's gross. Or uh, you hear stories about it biting people and uh, causing a lot of swelling and death. And, you know, et- right. Et cetera. Or is there there's something deeper? Is there something ingrained in us to be wary of snakes? Right.
0: Yeah, well, and some scientists would say that it's something we learn, and other scientists say that we're hardwired to fear snakes. Snakes are a great example. Uh, Lynn Isabel of the Uni- University of California at Davis posits that the primate brain specializes in visually detecting snakes. and She says that um, you know, our past experience shaped the brains that we have today, and that if you take a bunch of kids and you ask them to look at pictures they're um, far more likely to pick out the snake very quickly than, say, a, f- a flower or a caterpillar in those pictures. So they they sort of hone in on the snakes and that this is an instinct. And it does kind of uh, it uh it does bring up an interesting question about whether or not you can inherit that. And there was a Science Daily article called "Epigenetic Memory: Key to Nature versus Nurture," and it says uh, that organisms can create a biological memory of some variable conditions, like the quality of nutrition or a temperature or something that um, you might need to be scared of, essentially. And that this discovery essentially disga- uh, explains why you would have this passed down from daughter cell mm-hmm. to the next generation. So it's like a switch that's flipped on, depending on what the conditions are for that certain for that organism.
1: All right, so if this organism grows up in snake country, then uh the epigenetic changes will take place to make that person be wary of snakes. Where if someone is is uh, growing up in a, a northern region or on a, or an island where all the snakes have been driven out by a priest, yeah. and they're not going to worry about it.
0: Yes, but again, it gets tricky here because uh, Hel Her- Herzog, again in the book, uh, points to New Guinean tribes people mm-hmm. who have a high venomous snake population. A third of their snakes are venomous. So you would think that they would fear snakes; they would never touch them. Right, but in in fact, they're really good at ferreting out the ones that are non-venomous and the ones that are venomous. And then the ones that are non-venomous, they eat for dinner.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, that makes sense, though. They're living They're living there. They're, they know the local terrain. They know the local animals. And uh, and they know exactly which ones they can cook for dinner and which ones need to be avoided like the plague.
0: So they have specifically adapted. But they, that doesn't explain why people in North America are so fearful of snakes. I mean, you're far more likely to be killed by a dog than from a snake according to Hal Herzog. Well,
1: yeah, but I mean, we still have some very poisonous snakes. Cottonmouths, uh, Copperheads, uh, Rattlers, right?
0: True, yeah. true. And huh. there's, they're scary folks, I yeah, get it. Yeah. And dogs aren't quite as scary unless they're Cujo. Yeah. Yeah. Or my neighbor's dog. My neighbor's dog is quite scary.
1: Yeah? What kind of dog?
0: I don't know. I think it's a pit bull. Oh, well. They, Sorry, they can, pit bull they can owners, owners little, but... Uh,
1: yeah. They can be a little uh, scary.
0: Yeah, see, there I am. I'm just... Uh, I'm playing into the whole risk thing here about whether or not the risk is actually there. um but again, going back to this to this relationship with us and animals, Herzog really looks at this uncomfortable relationship with animals we have, and it's uncomfortable not just with snakes, oh so, okay, they could be a danger, this uncomfortable relationship in the fact that we eat some of them, and right. we make these deliberate choices to eat some of them and to keep others as pets or just look at them. Yeah. And it, and it,
1: it, <laughs> I guess that, yeah. One of the things about, uh, about this scenario that, that fascinates me, of course, is that, uh, you have, you can look at like two extremes, mm-hmm. like the person who is like a dyed in the wool meat eater, who is just you know, one of those people that maybe has like a really an- kind of annoying e- extremist attitude about it where it's like Ted Nugent. Yeah. Kind of like everything exists for me to potentially grill and eat. Mm-hmm. And and if I can't eat it, then don't waste my time with it. And then on the other hand, you can, you can have the, uh, the equally annoying, like, uber or vegan kind of stereotype where they, they feel this deep emotional connection with all life forms and therefore aren't going to eat anything. Don't eat but that tomato. There's just, a
0: seed in there that will fall. Yeah, yeah and, exactly. Yeah.
1: So, but, but the, the reality is most people fall somewhere in between and, mm-hmm. and it ends up being this complex relationship of, I mean, to a certain extent, it's kind of pick and choose. And then that is grafted into this worldview we have where it's okay to eat this but not this. This animal's our friend. This one is our ancestral enemy, uh, the snake. And then this one uh, this one's kind of in a gray area and we just don't think about that much.
0: Well, and I think that the reason why people are considering the question of eating meat so much these days is when our resources, right? We right. don't have that much land left to, to, um, to raise cows and pigs and everything else that's meat-oriented as we used to, and yet our consumption is at an all-time high, right?
1: Yeah, I feel like a lot of it you know, is people reaching the point where they where they're like, "Whoa, yeah, I, my family really ate a lot of meat. Was that really necessary to eat that much meat all the time? Because it grows from being a." a necessity or, a, or, or something you would just have every now and then. But, I mean, studies have shown that as as uh, countries' populations become more prosperous, mm-hmm. they eat more meat. Uh, well, you see that in
0: India and China, right? Yeah. Um, and, in fact, the same sort of factory farming practices are beginning to be practiced there, which is, is, is a whole other podcast about the ramifications of that on our environment. But it does sort of... Drawn to question this, or actually, sort of underscores this problem of okay, well, we have so much at our disposal mm-hmm. for the most part. People living in in um, in industrialized nations. And you had brought this up the other day that you saw a chicken biscuit snack and you you were saying oh, that's just kind of a ridiculous thing.
1: Yeah, it was on a billboard at like a fast food restaurant and there you know, it's like 99 cents chicken biscuit snack. And, and that make, made me feel kind of weird because I'm like, I, I really don't need an animal to die for my snack. Like for my snack, I can just do it with some fruit or some snack mix. Um, or just some gum and some water or something but but an animal doesn't need to die for my for my snack an animal doesn't need to die for my breakfast i think and you know maybe my brunch on a special occasion <laughs> yeah sometimes my lunch and dinner you know a couple times a week if it's like a fish or something, I guess. You know?
0: Yeah, and so that's the the sort of environment we're living yeah. in is that we have so much at our disposal that you start to back up and say, do we really need to have a chicken biscuit as a snack? Um you know, back in the day it used to be that you would kill a chicken and you would eat it from, you know, from uh head to tail, right? You would right. use every single part. And although there are some movements that are getting back to that, for the most part, Americans are getting a bucket of chicken and calling it a day, right? Right. Um so there's there's that sort of looming out there, right? That's just an odd sort of circumstance that we find ourselves in. Uh, but Hells Herzog wants to look at it even a little bit closer. Uh, again, why do we have this sort of uncomfortable relationship when we're we're looking at animals for, for a meat source or even just killing animals? Mm-hmm. Um, he writes about a game warden in an African village where baboons destroy crops and raise the hackles of the local humans because, of course, the, the baboons are threatening their food source, right, their vegetables and so on and so forth. It, it so annoys them that they actually trap them in pits at night and then they kill them in the morning. Uh, but they feel bad about this, and they actually have a saying in Swahili that is "never look a baboon in the eye."
1: It's it's a good idea, uh, <laughs> just, just in, in general. general, because they're yeah they're I I find baboons rather creepy and fearsome. You
0: do is yeah. there is it their heinies?
1: Well, their heinies are are certainly add to it because it's like, but I mean, the front of them they tend to be pretty fearsome and then their yeah. behinds are just kind of gross. But and then it's
0: it's like all rainbow in the back and then yeah, you're right, a little bit fangy in the front. Yeah,
1: I mean they're they're fascinating animals, but yeah, they're and then you see videos of them. I mean uh I've watched a lot of uh like Discovery BBC uh nature documentaries over the last few years and you uh, and Attenborough yeah me and, like you and this. Attenborough hanging out watching baboons like run down livestock um and eat things. Uh, they're and, and I also with monkeys I mean monkeys can often walk that that line between the adorable and the grotesque because right. because on one hand you look at a baby monkey and you kind of see a baby infant you see like some you see some positive aspects of humanity wrapped up in that that child infant but I mean, if you see like this ferocious-looking monkey with a weird phallus chasing down an animal and then <laughs> ripping into its throat, yeah, it, it still calls to mind some some very human qualities, but not the ones that you want to see magnified.
0: No, um, yeah, yeah, and and to your point too about baboons, they are not so cuddly, right? Right, they they are a little bit scary, um, and yet they're saying don't look the baboon in the eye. The reason is that the villagers can't help but see themselves in the baboon, right? right. They and, can't and, help. And when but you make connect. eye
1: contact with something, there is that connection. It's yeah. And it's one of those things like hanging out with, with our, with one's pet. There are aspects of it that never get old. Like you never stop finding your pet adorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but i but I, I find myself, uh, especially since I only came into ha- really having like an indoor pet in the last few years, like I'll look into the cat's eyes and the cat will be looking into my eyes. And I'm, it's, you know, kind of an outrageous overstatement of the obvious, but it's, it's just kind of mind blowing that we're connecting on some level. I mean, we can't talk. You're feeling
0: about... a connection for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, but she's connecting with me because she's looking at my eyes. She's, she's, she's looking to, uh, you know, to, to my sight center.
0: She's saying, give me more tuna. Yeah. Tuna. Well, yeah. I'm
1: not, I'm not saying that, you know, that we're having a deep <laughs> spiritual thing or that we're talking about books. <laughs> you could be. You but, could um, be. but yeah. So I can totally see why you would want to avoid looking into the baboon's eyes because then you're, you're, there's that, that brief moment of connection and with this, uh, this, This thing that looks very human in many ways, and then you're about to kill it.
0: All right, we'll be back in a moment, and we're going to discuss pigs, and we're also going to discuss Amazonians and their odd relationship to monkeys.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of tomorrow and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. And we're back before we get into uh, some more um, interesting animal relationships. I want to point out that um, that there have been some studies that have shown that there are some portions of the brain that light up when we see animals, but not human faces or objects. So it really underlines that the brain has evolved to specialize in processing information about animals. And this is
0: that parental instinct we are talking about. We again, you know, when you're looking at your cat and you guys are connecting, there's something going on there. Probably for both of you, because we've talked about this exchange of oxytocin before, too, right. particularly with dogs um, and uh, oxytocin being that feel good hormone that you usually associate between moms and new babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's there. There's that's all underlying that. But again, why why don't we look at a pig, which is far smarter than a dog uh-huh. and say, oh, that that pig is so smart and um, such a great fella or gal, you know, we should spare them the ax, you know, why, why them?
1: Yeah. Why is there this internet bacon phenomenon that refuses to die? Uh, like, why, why is that okay? Why is that, that hip when, you know, the the pig is smarter than the cat and, and, you know, probably smarter than the dog too. And uh, yeah, we're, a lot of us are totally fine with that becoming breakfast.
0: Well, because somewhere along the way, someone discovered bacon, right? And uh, that's a, it, it's delicious. That's what everybody's thinking right now.
1: Not everybody. They're gonna. I, I guarantee there's some people out there that are just a little over bacon.
0: Well, I don't know. Full disclosure, I'm a vegetarian, and I will mm-hmm. say that bacon is delicious. I do recall this. And I've actually heard of studies before that say that bacon is like the gateway drug to meat.
1: Really? Yeah. So know.
0: you could tempt anyone into meat if you were to, I guess, put a couple of strips uh, before someone's nose.
1: No, I don't know about that. I, I, I don't know. I'm I'm not as big on bacon these days. I, I still, All right. I, I mean, I'm. All right. Would be interesting to hear for some eat eat, bacon I, eaters, or
0: actually, uh, for, uh, former bacon eaters.
1: Former bacon eaters. Yes. So. Yeah. Reformed.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about uh, these Amazonians.
1: Um, yeah, there's a tribe in the Amazon. They are uh, the. Awa Garaja tribe. They they're, they were covered in the uh, the recent BBC Discovery uh, co-production, Human Planet. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it. It's a fascinating show. The show itself goes around the world and looks at different uh, um, human, uh, old human customs that are still practiced uh, for the uh, not for tourists, but for the act itself or the you know the benefit of the act. And this particular tribe, they will they go, will go out and they will hunt monkeys. Like monkeys are a huge part of their diet. They will catch some monkeys of various species, bring them home. Chop them up, put them in the stew pot. Everybody's watching. Everybody is, uh, you know, dipping into the pot and eating some monkey flesh, and it, you know, that's the most natural thing in the world for them. Great source of protein. But they'll uh, find themselves in positions where they've killed a mother monkey mm-hmm. and there'll be these baby monkeys. So they'll bring them back, uh, and they will care for them as pets, and uh, and and we'll, even in a way more than pets, because if there's a, an infant monkey that needs uh, needs breastfeeding, mm-hmm. uh, a human mother will actually breastfeed the monkey.
0: Okay, so yeah. that's that's just weird. The pet part I kind of understand, but the actual, like, taking the monkey into the family mm-hmm. and then giving it nourishment from your own breast. Well, is... they're,
1: but they're, they're making that connection. It's that parental connection. Yeah. So it's just kind of like the next step, right?
0: But how could you have that in this? You know, how could you have a, a slaughter of monkeys, but then... Well, have the nurturing of monkeys that's
1: the interesting part about it because and it's important to note too that these these monkeys they raise they don't like raise them up and then eat them these mm-hmm. monkeys have are once you take them home once they uh grow up when they've grown up with you, they have sort of privileged status right and it's not just mon- monkeys they're just they're just like an animal loving tribe they uh they love like their 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 village is just like crawling with animals of various descriptions uh they're 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 like the crazy cat lady except uh <laughs> not limited to felines um, right there's actually another group that they cover on there, uh, the, uh, Bish, Bishnoi women. This is in India and they actually breastfeed orphan gazelles. And Bishnoi, if I'm saying that correctly, this mm-hmm. is a Hindu sect of, uh, uh,
0: Vegetarian.
1: vegetarians mm-hmm. that really hold nature in high esteem. It's kind of a, kind of an, uh, echo dharma kind of thing going on. But yeah, the, the Amazonian tribe was the most interesting one because, because they're, they're they're not vegetarians. They will eat, they eat monkeys uh, regularly as part of their diet, but then they also raise them as pets. They, so they, on one level they can connect with them with, with the same, they'll have the same species of monkey, the same, this and it'll be a pet on one side and dinner on the other. So how do you end up create, creating the worldview? Well, maybe,
0: maybe that's the cognitive dissonance there, right? Okay. It's there's, there's gotta be some sort of tension Right. Or there's or, or some sort of friction between these two acts. And by becoming a surrogate mother mm-hmm. to these orphans, perhaps that's neutralizing the fact. And it, it, that's where that's where you're lessening the cognitive dissonance.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, to, I know I I'm want, ascribing yeah. a human
0: thing to to a primate, but. You know, it's it's uh, it is very interesting that they do this. They don't have to do this.
1: Yeah. But it's really it's really not that different from. From uh, the the complex uh, worldviews of the rest of us take on to uh, to make sense of that. Are you Armenian. thinking about war? Well, no, I'm just I'm just thinking about diet uh, in general. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you could get into to war as well. I mean, it, it basically comes down to heuristic framing, correct? Yeah. In psychology, um heuristics, it's all about efficient rules, hard coded into an evolutionary process. It basically explains how we make decisions, how we come to judgments and well, uh,
0: how our logic is flawed sometimes. Because. Yeah, we, yeah. Because we, you
1: end up having flawed logic built into the program. Yeah,
0: exactly. We, we create this framework and then we sort of never go outside of the framework because once we. have Build it in there, then you you feel like you've answered your questions, right?
1: Yeah, it's kind of an ethical operating system. Yeah, some things will work really well with it, but then occasionally you'll have a loophole that is uh, exploited by a, some viral logic, I guess, if you will. Like for instance, my own uh, framing system, self analyzing here about my own consumption of meat because I, go I even, on, even go though on. I eat less meat than than I used to, uh, mm-hmm. take uh, take cephalopods. All right, the cuttlefish is an animal that I, I think is an amazing creature. I think they're very adorable. I've never eaten one and I, I can safely say I will, I will probably never eat a cuttlefish because they're just, they're just too high on the, on the cute, fascinating creature list. And I have no experience tasting them and no interest in tasting them. Mm -hmm. All right. Then take the octopi. The octopi is a creature that I have eaten before, uh, generally in sushi. And and then I learned more about the species and I found out that some octopi are are as smart as a cat. And so I like the cat. I'm not going to eat the cat. And then, But then the thought of this octopi being, being, the octopus being as smart as the cat, I'm, I'm suddenly just really adverse to eating that guy. So so my esteem for the creature itself and its intelligence is higher. But also, I was never really that impressed with the taste of octopi. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you had a
0: low return on yeah, investment. Yeah, a low return
1: on investment there. Now, the squid, however, I, I haven't read that much indicating that the squid is uh, is as smart as a cat. Mm-hmm. And the taste of the squid is that much better. So. It, it's perfectly fine with me to eat squid. Like I have no ethical problem. See, and with that at none all.
0: of that makes a lick of sense, really.
1: Really, other I than mean, yeah. you're
0: transposing a cat face onto an octopus,
1: that which is adorable. I think it my, my wife cute. had a dream like that once, where where she had a, an octopi with a cat with a cat's head, and it was all fuzzy. Did she really? Yeah,
0: that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and her brother was trying to like take it from her or something. Of course he one. was.
0: He wanted it. It was that cool. So a lot of this is pointing to this problem of having a theory of mind. And this is what Hal Herzog says in the book, this theory of mind.
1: Yeah, this is the this is the whole human thing where you can't look at another person, another animal, et cetera, without sort of putting yourself in uh, in that creature's shoes mm-hmm. to try and think as it thinks. Mm-hmm. On, on a very human level, this is important because it allows us to empathize with people, to try and understand where they're coming from and better communicate with them, to yeah. better work with them. You know, it's the whole reason they had that test in Blade Runner for the uh for the the replicants to see oh, if, right, yeah. to see if they were a replicant or not, because the the, the tells were in their ability to uh, to empathize with somebody else. Mm-hmm. But with animals, of course, it's very it's also very useful in hunting them, in figuring out what they're doing. Because you can't ask the cat, "Hey, what are you up to?" You have to you have to use the theory of mind to try and figure out what it's doing, or the chicken that you're trying to chase around the yard, or the deer that you're hunting in the uh, in the forest.
0: This is the crux of the problem, though. Because in order for you to inhabit the mind of another, whether Mm -hmm. it be, you know, a saber-toothed tiger or your next-door neighbor, you have to get in, think like them, try to predict the future, and empathize. Like, you cannot take the empathy away from the prediction model. Right. Right? Because it's sort of hardwired in there. So. This is what I think leads to feelings of conflict. So if you connect with your potential food source and you ascribe some of your own attributes to them, because you're going to, right? You're right. going to project yourself onto them. You're going to unconsciously be defining this creature in the shadow of yourself.
1: It's like a hitman that gets to know uh, the dude he's supposed to whack. Right.
0: That's right. You you quit objectifying that person. Yeah. Um. And you are. And so in this case, though, if you're you're hunting this, you're about to eat this creature, and and Hal Herzog would even say that that all of a sudden you you might be feeling something like cannibalism. Right. Uh. Which I think is really interesting. And he even talks too about how uh, this Columbia University University historian Richard Bulliette says that the more distant we've become from the creatures that produce food and fiber and hides the closer our relationships with pets have become and the more meat we eat the more we feel guilty about it because we've come to know animals as less as them and more as us
1: yeah but of course if you're depending on uh, on some forms of meat and some markets for meat you're 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 so far removed from the source that you don't even you know you, you have kids that, that that don't know that a hamburger is a cow you know, for for the longest, because, you know, how would you know?
0: Well, this is, and that's an interesting point you make, because this is when I, for myself personally, and the, this is, by the way, I am a vegetarian and uh, this is a personal choice and I'm not, you know, forcing this onto anyone, but I am going to say that, uh, that for me, the, the, the weird point, the disconnect came when I realized that once again, I was opening this package of chicken boneless chicken mm-hmm. and I was sliding it out into the frying pan and and trying my best not to touch it. And I would never touch meat. And so I started to realize, like, that's ridiculous that I'm about to eat it this is, thing, but, you don't want to touch but it. I cannot touch it. I cannot get myself to to touch the flesh of it.
1: Yeah, because, like, the act of cooking is like a transformation. It, it transfers it from flesh to food. Right. And uh, eating food is no problem. And, yeah, and so many of us don't really, especially if you end up, if you're not really a, a cook at all, if, like, say you just depend on fast food. As you're, or, or some sort of like microwavable type of prepackaged processed thing. Yeah. You're not really touching flesh that much. You're always dealing with food. You're, you've got yeah. the process part of it. Yeah. Right. Indeed.
0: So anyway, that's the, again, you know, here's <laughs> pointing to this problem, uh, at least for me, which was, okay, if I, if I can't, if I can't get my head around doing this one act and yet I can mm. do this other act, then, then somehow for me personally, there's a disconnect that I need to square myself with. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that Hal Herzog talks about how we do this on some level sometimes, either we, you know, make a conscious decision to stop eating meat or, you know, we try to be, uh, better about eating, uh, responsibly. Right. Like, you know, like cutting
1: it down to not having, um, you know, a chicken biscuit for a snack Right. or, or of course, another one is, uh, it's, I I've heard it, uh, uh, put that you should only have your meat serving should be about the size of a wallet.
0: Right. And right. Uh,
1: and if you're eating more than that, then you're eating meat irresponsible. Or if
0: my, Michael Pollan says, I think, something o- along the lines that during the day he's a vegetarian at night, he's a carnivore. Something okay. along, along those lines. Like that's, well, that's,
1: be- of- that's because he's a, le- he's a werewolf. That-
0: yeah. I mean, right, right. He right. can't
1: help it. That's an inherited uh, <laughs> uh, genetic condition.
0: He looks mild-mannered in that button-up uh, shirt, but no. Uh, beneath that exterior is a, a werewolf. Uh, but then they also say that there's something called semantic moral distancing. That's another tactic. Yeah, this right. is
1: where you're getting into this, like the uh, also the psycholinguistics, the use of language, yeah. and of course, and the use of meaning. Because be, the way I'm I'm sort of looking at it here is you could you have like a a, a simple arrangement, like the hitman and the duty's going to whack mm-hmm. the person, and then the animal kingdom, where I am human, everything else is other, and I can eat anything that's other, right? Provided it other kill is
0: objectifying me. things, right. right? But
1: then when I use that theory of mind, everything that is other potentially becomes to varying degrees me yes or, or at least my species and you level.
0: distance yourself then from me the me and you and the other right <laughs> god we're gonna need a so, flow that, chart so the system
1: you just immediately like there's just a quantum leap in its complexity mm-hmm. just its semantic complexity and and so suddenly our worldview isn't one of us and other of me and then potential food but this this multi-layered, uh, view, uh, in which th- some things are food, some things are not, some things are, are pets, some p- things are flesh, some things are food. Mm-hmm. It's, um, and, it's crazy. And, and
0: in psycholinguistics, they would say, you know, is it that we are determining, uh, are we determining our reality through language or are we defining reality through language? Right. Like, right?
1: It, like it's like the, the flesh food thing, um, if you go to, to go to the, the the fast food restaurant you're not going to order hey give me some dead cow can you can you give me some heated dead cow on some bread because that would be great no you just ask for a hamburger right and i mean that's and and to a to a lesser extent what is the hamburger it's beef it's not and what is beef it's cow, cow flesh. Like, yeah it's like like nice meat. all these different levels of uh semantics different uh different language um uh, differences between the the food and the flesh, between the, uh, the the thing we're consuming and the animal.
0: Yeah, and so you see that that moral distancing, right, right. through language, and you see that you're that we're painting our existence through language, right? right. We're, we're we're painting this particular reality for us. I'm going to eat a hamburger through language, as opposed to I'm about to eat some cow meat, as you say, or cow dead cow meat. Uh-huh. Um, and and you see this all through. It's not just with animals. You see this at the corporate level too, right? Um, you hear downsizing right or elimination instead of you know i just sacked you or you know something that feels uh, a little bit more true and yeah
1: or you say we wish you you're the best in your future endeavors uh, as opposed to don't let the door hit you in the butt on the way out
0: right right um and these these little niceties these little moral distancing and again you in the food world you can see this all over the place i mean bacon is a great example right why didn't yeah. we just call it Again, Except the flesh. Germans,
1: though, and that's the really fascinating yeah. thing. Because uh, in Germany, if you're ordering some, uh, if you're talking about uh, pork, mm-hmm. you just say Schweinfleisch, which is uh, which is pig flesh, or uh, Rindfleisch uh, for cow flesh. They're they're a lot more direct. They're
0: so <laughs> hard nosed. Yeah, those Germans. You kind of I gotta admire that. You know, because there's there's no uh, there's no lifting of the veil there. Right, the, the veil has been lifted. Um, and I thought this was interesting too, in Hal Herzog's books, he talks about how powerful it is, this, uh, this language of psycholinguistics, that if you look at something like the Patagonian toothfish, mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't sound too appetizing, right? Yeah,
1: don't, i I'm just imagining a fish like embedded with teeth. Exactly. Yeah. Jaundice
0: looking eyes, yeah. uh, spiny teeth, just not something you necessarily want to eat, um, and it, it really, you, that's what that sounds like, right? Patagonian uh-huh. toothfish sounds very prehistoric. Um, but behold, the Chilean sea bass.
1: Oh, now it sounds tasty.
0: Doesn't that sound like a foodie's biggest dream there? Well, that's
1: like the dolphin, right? Not not the dolphin, the mammal, but the dolphin fish mm-hmm. uh, to to better market. I believe that's the one that they they now call Mai, mai right?
0: Yeah, uh, that's right.
1: Because that sounds delightful. Whereas dolphin, it sounds potentially problematic because for some reason it has the same name as this mammal that yeah. is... Uh, is you know crazy smart
0: yep i mean you don't want to eat flipper right right um and then they also talk about to the canadian government describing a seal hunt right as a harvest uh-huh. a coal a management plan and you've got PETA on the other side saying no it's a massacre it's a slaughter it's an atrocity so it's very interesting to see how you how approaching um this reality for each for no matter no matter where you are on the side of the issue yeah there's language you specific can, to you it. You can
1: summon the, the appropriate language to, to color it however you want. Yeah.
0: So I don't know. And I, I do think it's uh, interesting too that PETA started using save the sea kittens to try the to get sea people kittens. a little bit more aware of fish <laughs> as, as, um, you know, I guess as, as might look at them. Hmm. Um, like, Hey, don't we eat the fish. Yeah. I, They're I, little I, kittens.
1: Yeah. I don't know about sea kitten. I yeah.
0: I know. But I did think it was interesting the uh, creative use of language there.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah.
0: So there you go. Some some thoughts on this. Um, it's it's tricky business. This this subject.
1: Yeah. It's um, and 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 I definitely want to reiterate. You know, not not being judgy about anybody's uh, decisions on uh, on what they eat and why they they eat it. But uh, I, I guess I, t- I do tend to to air toward uh, uh, digging the the idea that that we should be at least a little open about, uh, about why we eat the things we eat. And, uh, and even, even if we're not open all the time about it, that it at least have those moments of clarity where we, we realize that, uh, that, well, this, this thing that I'm eating, it's delicious as heck, but it also used to be a thing running around on four legs. And that's not necessarily good, not necessarily bad, but I think it's an important reality, um, if, if only in dealing with the, uh the logistics of our current food situation.
0: Well, and I think too, right, now, as you say, the current food food situation, this is not a conversation we would be having a hundred years ago because probably you or I would be out in the backyard wringing a chicken's neck. Yeah. And you wouldn't, you would understand what it took to get that to the plate. And right? our
1: podcast would be, um, <laughs> what, <laughs> what format would it be on? I guess it would be on like an old record or what was the tube? Uh, uh
0: Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Let's see, 100 years ago. Well, gosh, I don't even think the talkies were in play. Maybe it would be
1: a newspaper uh, column we would have.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Make up your own reality there.
1: (laughs) Well, cool. If uh, any of you have any thoughts, uh, definitely let us know. We would love to hear uh, everyone's thoughts about um, our food situation. You know, we want to hear from, you know, if you're a a hardcore vegan or a... a Nugent-esque, uh, lover. If you lover. are
0: Ted Nugent, we want to hear from you.
1: Yeah, maybe. And, uh, in, in all the places you fall in between, let us know. Are there animals that, uh, uh that you're, you that everyone else seems fine with eating that you, uh, rule out? Are there animals that no one wants to eat, but you think would be a great thing to cook up? Let us know.
0: Yeah, and also, Zuckerman, if you're out there, we want to hear from you because apparently he's doing this whole oh, thing yes. from,
1: from food to he's table. He's only going right? to eat animals or- that he kills personally. Yeah. Which is, I don't know. This is kind of creepy. It's just and, and a little old kind of macho for me. I mean, it's
0: someone who has a lot of time on their hands and a lot of money in their pockets. Yeah,
1: this you know, it just applies to animals, though, not the veggies. He's not out there. No, like, no, he's not.
0: He's not slaughtering yeah. eggplants.
1: Uh, yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those.
0: And you can also drop us an email at BlowTheMind at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to work
1: staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.